preached on them before. That was sort of an interesting thing for me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Hoshea, and we're also going to talk about Hezekiah, and then I want to take you into Isaiah. So let's begin with a word of prayer. God Almighty, we tell you we love you, and we thank you for your mercy upon us. Come, Lord, Holy Spirit, be poured out in this place. We offer ourselves to you. Lord, you know, as I read your word, I'm so aware that you have a plan for us, and that that plan is bigger than anything that we can understand. Lord, that you reach into our lives and you touch us, you reveal yourself to us, you call us. And we pray today, Lord God, that you will do just that, that you will reach into our lives, touch us, reveal us, and call us. So unpack your word for us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as I've been looking at some of these, uh, these uh, kings, uh, the thing that's drawn me as I, as I read and pray a little bit is the, the relational dynamics. So for me, when I interpret, and especially when I interpret the Old Testament, you know, Jesus' comment to the Pharisees one day is, uh, he said, you know, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, and yet you refuse to come to me. And then he talked about how all the Scriptures point to him. So, in the early days uh, of the church, um, just after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles, it says, dedicated themselves to prayer, they dedicated themselves to the Word, and they studied, and what they developed in terms of teaching, in terms of interpreting their Old Testament, that is what we now have in the New Testament, essentially. And all of it ultimately points to Jesus. So, when we talk about reading your Bible, especially reading your Old Testament, we are called to look at that through Jesus and how it pulls the people of God to Jesus. I'm reminded of John chapter 1, and I think it's verse 17. It says that the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what I've come to understand uh, is that the law, the righteous standards of God were given through Moses. And there wasn't very much understanding of what that really meant uh, until Jesus came. Now that we see Jesus um, and we look at the law through Jesus, we understand what the law was meant for. And the Apostle Paul actually unpacks it. He says the law was meant to show us our sinfulness. The law was actually meant to show us our weakness. So who here carries weakness, right? We all carry our weaknesses. We all have our failures. You know, this morning right now, you all look good and smell good and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when we're, when we're home alone and when we're struggling, you know, those weaknesses really stand out. And, and so that is what the law ultimately is meant to do. You know, I like to ask people, so uh, the law, or like to say that, you know, the law is sort of like uh, the, um, it's sort of like a mirror. Anyone here ever look at themselves naked in a mirror? The next question is, did you like what you see? There's always some bodybuilder in the back that goes, yeah, now, I'm not talking to you. Whatever, right? <clears throat> uh, so it actually reminds me of a friend of mine in college who was a bodybuilder. And the thing that stood out to me about this guy all the time is he'd look in a mirror. You know, we'd be in the gym. There'd be mirrors all over the place. He'd look in a mirror. And, he, and he, there was always something wrong, according to him. I'm going, you're the best-looking dude I've ever seen in my life, right? Uh, perfectly built. But all he could see was, no, this needs to move here. This needs to tweak here. This needs to get bigger. This needs to get smaller. What does a mirror do? A good mirror basically shows you your flaws at the, at the end of the day. That's what the law does for us. It shines the righteousness of God, but it also shows us our inability to live in the manner that God 
uh, asks. And so it prepares us. It prepares us for the mercy of God. It prepares us for this God that comes to us in Jesus, who pours himself into skin, comes and lives amongst us, and dies on the cross to pay for our guilt. And he wipes it away. And I bet you money that most of us in this place do not have a living understanding of that. We continue to, to, to try to grapple with that. But you know what? The reality is, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. We stand clean before God. God knows that we'll stumble and fall and all that kind of stuff. But there is no condemnation for us. And that's what the Scripture talks about. When the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God saw our inability and He, he made a way. And He just said, I will take it on Myself. And I will give My mercy to My children. So, you know... Jesus, somebody came to him the one day, and, and again, some of you have heard me say this over and over again, and this is what I live with. I always, I always go to what Jesus said was most important, because that's sort of the lens through which I view life. Jesus, uh, when they came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, uh, I think they were actually trying to trip him up, but Jesus' response was, the greatest commandment is this, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. You know, when you live with a sense of condemnation and you live with a sense that God wants to fail uh, to punish you, you may honor God, you may try to glorify God, but you will not love God. You will not truly love God. I remember when I fell in love, my wife looked at me and said, one night she said, she wasn't my wife then either, right? Um, she was my pre-wife. And she looked at me and she said, I love you. And I went, went numb for a moment. Then my brain started twisting in a different way, and I fell head over heels in love with her. And I started being weird. I started doing strange things, things that I didn't normally do. Why? Because she loved me, and it elicited a response in me. And part of that response was freedom. I suddenly had this freedom to be the person that I normally hid from other people. Well, I remember once I finally figured out that she actually loved me and that I had a chance with her because I didn't think I had a chance with her before. Then I started to perform. I drifted back into performing. And I remember one day she looks at me and she says, you know, you're not the guy that I fell in love with. I don't, I don't know if I want to go with you anymore. What? <laughs> Freaking me out. And I looked at her and probably in one of the most honest statements I ever, I ever made, I said, I'm just trying to be who you want me to be. She said, well, don't. Because I liked it better when you didn't think you had a chance. <laughs> Serious, right? The moment we start to perform, the moment we start trying to perform that law even before God, we become what is known as hypocrites. We become phony. We start burying our inner selves. We start creating this veneer that people cannot relate to, really. We lose our freedom. So as I look at that passage, Jesus says, the greatest thing is that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. I'm struck so deeply that it is that relationship that pours the power of God into our lives to love one another. And very often when we're, when we're struggling to love one another or be loved by one another, it is because the relationship with God has been neglected and we have lost that sense of His love for us. Does that, that make sense to you? So then... Let me segue back a little bit. I, I find myself looking at a couple of these kings today. And what we have basically in our passage here is we've got 
Uh, one king that is selfish, one king that wants to do his own thing. Uh, his name was Hoshea, and it says this, uh, that he, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That doesn't just mean that he did bad things. The, the definition of evil, the definition of sin in Romans 14, 23, and you heard me say this before probably last time I was here, it, it's unfaith. It's when we say, I will do my life my own way, by my own strength, for my own purposes. When we say that, we become dedicated essentially to evil, to selfishness. We lose the source, that source connection with God that Jesus spoke of in John 15 when he said, abide with me. Unless you abide with me, you can do no good work. Well, this uh, first king, that's what he chose. He chose um, um, a selfish route. I will do it myself. I will uh, run the kingdom my way. And it says that he came under attack. Uh, I get a kick out of the, uh, the way that he ran the kingdom. Well, one day things all went bad for him. It says, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal, which means, you know, sort of his servant king, right? Had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he sent envoys to So, the king of e Egypt. Um, oh, I wondered, how did the guy get named So? He's born, and his dad goes... So, anyway, and then got distracted, I guess. So they called him So, right? So, the uh, king of Egypt. And um, let's see here. So the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it. And at the end of the day, um, brought um, Hoshea down. So as I look at, look at this, it, it struck me. The basis of which, uh, the basis on which uh, Hoshea ran his kingdom, was manipulative. Um, he bought people off. He made contracts with people and treaties with people where he paid them off. And then when he felt it was in his best interest, he betrayed them. So I get thinking about that, and I'm thinking about the whole relational dynamics, and I'm thinking about what a healthy relationships look like. Um, and it struck me that deceit and manipulation. When you use those as a way to run your relationships, it will always come back to bite you. you know, can I say that, bite you? That's like a technical term. Um, anyway, you know. Um, if you have to buy somebody off, and I don't care if you're a, a woman who's trading sex uh, to a man so that you can get your emotional needs met, that's buying somebody off. If you're a man who is trading uh, emotional uh, gratification to a woman for sex, that's buying someone off. If you have to trade something to someone else to buy them off to gain their loyalty, that will not last. That's what Hoshea did. He paid the kings around him to do what he wanted them to do. And when his, uh, when, when it, when it, those things uh, ran out, he would shift his allegiance and he would betray. The reality is if you have to buy people off to be in relationship with you, um, it's a selfish thing and you cannot trust them. So it makes me wonder, makes me want to ask, who here, are you in a relationship where you have to buy someone off? Where you have to pay somebody to be loyal to you? Because if you're in that kind of a relationship, it's going to fail. You cannot buy loyalty. Loyalty is based on love. Uh, same thing on the other side. If somebody is paying you or somebody is buying you off, 
You can't trust them either. Not only can they not trust you, but you can't trust them because they live in fear of you. You know, how many of us are trying to buy God off with our good works? We're doing all this stuff that we, we think that we need to do to please God, and essentially this is what we're doing. We're trying to pay God off, and we are untrustworthy. We live in fear, and our fear drives us. So, anyway, struck me a little bit about King Hoshea. That's the way he handled his kingdom. That's the way he functioned. Well, it says the Lord warned Israel. So let's expand it now to Israel and Judah. The, the, word, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, obey my commandments. And really essentially what that means is turn from your selfish ways. Turn from those ways of manipulation and lying and deceit. Turn from those ways where you use uh, payment and all those kinds of things to get your way. But it says they, were not, they would not listen. They were stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. And the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. They were selfish. And the way they handled themselves, they were stubborn in their selfishness. They wanted their own way. Who here has ever tried to deal with a teenager that wants his own way? Or a terrible two that wants his own way, right? Uh, I was one of those teenagers and my father could do nothing with me. Uh, that said, he loved me. He was angry at the way I ran my life many times because it thwarted his ability to love me and be in relationship. And so when we look at this, and it talks about how God is angry uh, with Israel, his anger didn't mean that he hated the people. It meant that he hated the sins, their dedication to the sin that took the people away from him. God hates that in us. He hates that in us. And, and yet, you know, I find myself cross-referencing back to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, it says the same thing. It speaks about a people that are so dedicated to their sin. They even cheer other people that get on board with their sin. That is their primary dedication. And it says that there comes a certain point where God gives them over to their sin. You know what that means. It means God says, if you're, gonna, if you're insistent on doing it your way, then I'm going to let you do it your way, and there are going to be consequences. And the consequence is that we no longer have the resources in our lives that God alone can bring to bear. You know, I think about the prodigal son, and you all remember the prodigal son, how he said, you know, old man, I want my half of my inheritance, I want it now. You know, the old man, his dad, sells half the farm, hands it to him, and the kid goes off into a far land and lives on his own. And he was dedicated to his sin. Things didn't go well for him. And he finally finds himself eaten, uh, eaten out of a pig trough and not getting enough food at that. And it says, finally, he came to his senses. And how God desires that day when we come to our senses, what does that mean? It means we're finally ready to re-engage relationship with him and let him be the strength to us that he wants. So anyway, I look at Hoshea. Hoshea and the Israelites, why were they dispersed? Because they refused God, because they refused the strength God could pour into them, because they said, I will do it my way, and they dedicated themselves to evil, and there was consequence to that, and the kingdom was dispersed. Well, along comes another king. This is a faith-based king, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah. He was 25 years old, as we saw in the video, and it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
Just as his father David had done, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles, and the Lord was with him. The Lord wasn't just with him because he destroyed all the, all the idols. We can do idols in our hearts. The Lord was with him because his heart was for the Lord. And he was so disgusted with what was going, around, going, going on in the kingdom that he took action to get the distractions out of the way, and he turned the people back to the worship of the Lord. God calls each of us to that. And so as we look at him, his worship of God allowed him to receive what God wanted to pour into his life. Well, interestingly enough, he ran into uh, a little bit of challenge. And one of the challenges he ran into, again, was the king of, Iz- uh, the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria says, um, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and a might for war, but you speak only empty words. So the king of Assyria sent his general Shalmaneser to uh, invade and, um, and he mocked Isaiah's abilities. And he said, you don't have any strength to stand against me. You know, I think about the people in my life that have come and have mocked me. Uh, you don't have any strength. You know what? You're right. I think about my own life right now, and every now and then I, I run into guys from my past life, my young life, my pre-sanctified life. Not that I'm fully sanctified yet, but i got a different focus now. And they're going like, you? You're doing what? Oh, my goodness, Right? Um, anyway, he was mocked, and he was mocked by this king, and he was threatened by this king, and his response was so interesting. He humbled himself in prayer, and he turned to his God. Well, Sennacherib received a report. Um, it says here that Terhaka, <laughs> the king of Cush, was march- marching out to fight against him. So he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, say to Hezekiah, of Judah. Don't let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. And so Sennacherib begins to mock God. Don't say that your God can support you because it ain't going to happen. I got more power than your God and I'm going to take you out, right? And again, Hezekiah, instead of resorting to manipulation and buying people off, It says, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, uh, the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. It's interesting to me that Hezekiah, his response in his prayer, he really just cast himself on the mercy of God. He said, God, if there is a solution to this problem, it is you that will bring it. God, here we are, helpless before you. Do what you need to do. Glorify yourself. You know, oftentimes we pray prayers, uh, and I think about all the prayers I've prayed in my life. Dear Lord, please bless what I want to do for you. You know, and I sort of got my own way. And, and you know, James, uh, the book of James talks about how oftentimes we pray and we don't receive uh, answers because we pray with selfish hearts. Hezekiah's prayer was not a selfish prayer. It was, Lord, glorify yourself. And and the thing is, when you pray unselfish prayers, what you're really doing is that God knows your need better than you know it yourself, and His option for you will be better than the option you want Him to bless for yourself. Does that make sense? So, here we have Hezekiah praying that kind of a prayer. 
He finds himself in God's mercy. And God answers Isaiah and Hezekiah together. And he, and he speaks to the king, uh, Sennacherib, and his commander. And he says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This is God's promise. And ultimately, God defeats. Um, he sends the angel of the Lord out into the camp, wipes out 185,000 people. And this commander that was leading the army goes back home. It gets a little disillusioning when your whole army dies overnight, you know. Um, he's going, something's wrong here, man. There's spooks in this land. And he goes home, and a couple of his sons kill him shortly later, uh, shortly uh, after that, while he's worshiping in his temple. You know, that's one of the other things that stands out for me as I read these kings. There are not a lot of good dads in here, you know. Like even David. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was a lousy dad. Who here remembers Absalom? You know, Absalom was one of David's uh, sons, and David wept over him, but Absalom couldn't care less about David. Why? Because David didn't take time. I mean, you got all those wives and all those kids. He didn't take time to build the relationships with his kids. Dads, if you're a dad, if you're a mom, take time to build the relationships with your kids. The same applies to us with God. Take time to build that relationship. It allows the grace of God to pour through us. Well, anyway, so you see two kings. One king who used manipulation, who bought people off. He couldn't trust anyone. And sure enough, his little house of cards caved in. Then you see another king, a king who was humble before God, who cast himself on the mercy of God, who offered his situations, his unwinnable situations to God. And God was filled with joy to pour his grace through that king into his land and save his people. This is what God looks for for us. You know, when I think about this church here, each one of you, you have a community that you're in. And each one of you, God desires to pour his love through. And as we spend our time before God, you know, as the song said, with our hands high and our hearts abandoned, we allow the Spirit of God to pour through us into our families and into our community. And it's not up to us to, to decide what that's going to look like. As you read your way through your Bible, the guys that had the most amazing spiritual experiences didn't decide what it was going to look like. They just reacted to what God did. So I want to take you now to Isaiah. This is an amazing passage. It's the call of Isaiah, and it blows me away. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim, each, were, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. I want to unpack that because there's several things here that may have some relevance to your life and mine. 
God has got a call on each of us. And I find it interesting here that uh, Isaiah, Isaiah was a priest, and he was doing reg- regular church things. You know, a lot, of, a lot of you folks here, we're called the priesthood of all believers, you know, according to Peter. And we come into church fairly regularly, often of us, we do church things. Um, and so Isaiah was. And, you know, I often think about when I grew up in the church, I didn't really expect too much. You know what I mean? Walked into church, um, do your church thing, you know, worship God and leave. I remember one time asking God, Lord, why is church so boring? Who here has ever been to a boring church service? <laughs> I've led, led a whole pile of those services myself, okay? So then I'm praying one day, you know, we used to have this seminar where, where in my first church, and, and the weekend of the seminar was so exciting, and the Holy Spirit would show up and all that kind of stuff, and then the next week, it, we, we'd go to church, and it'd be just flat boring. Cold, empty, well, you know, nice people, right? But we just didn't see much of God. And I remember going, Lord, why? What's going on? Why is it so boring? And I felt like God said to me, well, you know, what do you expect when you go to church? Well, not much. You know, my way of thinking is not much. You know, it's not expecting much. You could at least do something for us, right? Um, And I felt like the Lord said, yeah, well, your prayer's being answered. (laughs) You know, Hebrews 11 says that without faith, we cannot please God. Why? Because faith turns us to God and allows God to pour His mercy into our life. And the thing that God loves the most is pouring His mercy into our life. God sees our inability to run our lives on our own. He sees our weaknesses and He says, I want to help for crying out loud. Who here has ever been the parent that's been sidelined by a kid who doesn't need you? And you're like agonizing and you're going, I just want to help like I could help you with that, right? I remember taking my daughter to the swimming pool one time. She was terrible two time, and she was, get away from me, sit on that pool. She didn't say it that eloquently, but she said, sit on the sidelines, I'm off to play. Well, she got on the other side of the pool, she slipped, and she went under the water, and when she came up, she'd sucked in some water, and her eyes were bugged out, and she was looking at me, and she needed dad. I come up, six million dollar man, slap on the music, man. <laughs> For those of you who remember that show, right? Um, I come off the edge of, the, edge of that pool, running across, you know, belly hanging out, the whole thing, I didn't care what people looked, what, I, what people thought about what I looked like or nothing. i got to get to that daughter. She goes under again. She comes up again. Boom, I got her in my arms. She's up in my arms. She's got both her little hands clamped around my neck, and she goes, Daddy, I drowned. And I'm hugging her, and the pool guy comes over, lifeguard comes over, he says, Sir, we have to fill out a situation re- report. Buzz off. Why are you so hostile? Because she's hugging me for the first time in six months. <laughs> she needs me. This is a heart of God. He wants to be involved, right? And so often we're going, God, I can do it my way. And by the way, you know what? I like controlling things my way anyway. Trusting you is whatever. And we leave God sidelined. And God wants to be involved, right? And so, and so anyway, here... Here's Isaiah, and he's doing his church thing. But unbeknownst to Isaiah, there's a God who wants to be involved coming after him. Walks into the church, and suddenly God opens heaven. And God reveals himself to Isaiah in a way that undoes Isaiah. And that's what Isaiah cries out. I am a man undone. Depending what translation you use, Woe is me, for I am undone. And he falls apart in the presence of God. 
And he's struck with the power of God. And he's struck with his own weakness. And simultaneously, and this response, woe is me, I didn't know. You know, this is the part of God's call on each of our lives. It's the revelation part. Each one of us who follows God, God comes to us and gives us a revelation. And, and, and right following the revelation comes the reaction. Woe to me, I am ruined. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, this is a guy who smelled good, looked good, acted good. He's a priest. I mean, this guy is practiced in being good. And suddenly, all that falls away, and he's going, I am a man of unclean lips. This is a guy who is trained how to speak liturgically. He goes into that temple. He, pro- he, he reads the proclamations. He does everything just right. And yet, he sees that he's a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Got to know this about Isaiah. Isaiah was trained in that law performance sort of mentality. And, and so for him to come into the presence of God meant that he would be destroyed. You don't come near the, the, the living righteous God in our state and not be destroyed. That's like throwing uh, straw into a blast furnace. It's consumed by the fire right now. Isaiah was terrified, I'm going to die. It's interesting what God does in that moment. Then one of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the fire. And with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Hold it. Isaiah didn't pray a prayer of repentance. Or did he? Behold, I am a man of unclean lips. You know, I, I think about that. You know, we oftentimes we get so caught up in praying the right prayers at the right point in time and all that kind of stuff, and God's forgiveness doesn't take effect until you pray the prayer of repentance. I even had a guy tell me one time that God only loves repentant people. So God doesn't love you before you pray the prayer. He only loves you after you pray the prayer. And then I think about Jesus, who's teaching in a room, and they can't get a guy into him, and the guy needs healing, so they chop a hole in the roof, they let him down, and, the guy, and Jesus looks at their faith, and he goes, my son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't require the guy to pray the repentance prayer first. I think about the guy in the Bible, Legion, who was possessed by a legion of evil spirits. Jesus lands on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He climbs out, and this guy comes legging it down out of the tombs, screaming, demons manifesting, what do we have to do with you? Are you here to torment us before the time? And I always wondered about that. Why is this demon-possessed man running toward Jesus when the demons are trying to get away from Jesus? And I understood suddenly there's a dynamic happening. What is the dynamic? There's a man packing lots of evil spirits. And buried underneath all that is a man who is desperate for help. And he sees Jesus on that shore. And his heart cries out within him. And he runs to Jesus. And the demons he carry carriers are going like, get us out of here, right? And they're fighting against it, speaking through him. And yet, Jesus looks through the demons. He sees the repentant heart in the man. You get out. Puts a man back in his right mind and sets him free. Folks, you know what? I mean, when we talk about repentance, when we talk about what Isaiah is speaking of here, it's more than just words. Words only express the heart. I think about my brother. You know, my brother's one of the heroes of my life. He was quadriplegic. He couldn't speak a word. Um, 
but he could make his noise. And I remember laying on the bed with him at night. I'd put him to bed and I'd prop his legs up. He was cerebral palsy and he was spastic and all that stuff. And I would prop it. I'd wrestle with him before we go to sleep. He couldn't do much wrestling, so I'd leap on him and we, I'd wrestle for both of us. Eh? We, we get done with that and I'd prop him up for sleep. We'd do prayers. And he would make his noise and the Holy Spirit would come into the room. I think about when I was training down to St. Paul's here, my chaplaincy work, walking through the halls, and you could hear in certain parts of the hospital people groaning with pain. And you know, I remember listening to those groans and thinking the amount of meaning that is in those groans. You always have to look through the noise of the mouth to see the heart. Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. And you can speak all you want. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. Jesus, when he, when he taught us how to pray, he said, don't be like the pagans who stack up lots of words. He said, I want your heart. So here's Isaiah, and his heart is broken by this revelation of God. Oh, God. And he sees his weaknesses. And, you know, that is so Romans 5.20. It says, a law was sent that sin might abound, that where sin abounded, the grace of God might, might abound all the more. You know, one of the reasons why a lot of us, we struggle with walking forward with God is because we don't want to have our hearts revealed. We want to be able to do general little confessions. We don't want to have our ugly exposed. Well, it doesn't work that way. For the people that God is, is, is going to use, He brings these life uh, these, these moments of conviction where your heart is revealed and you realize, I cannot do this on my own, and whatever I do falls short. Because in that moment, we're ready for His mercy and His grace and His power to pour into us. And this is what happened to Isaiah. The moment of his cry, I am ruined, God came to him and touched him with a coal, and he says, your sins are forgiven. You know, it strikes me. I, I teach on forgiveness. That's one of the things that I do. Uh, and I've been amazed over the years at how much forgiveness permeates everything. One of my little, uh, um, uh, one of my little, uh, how do you put it, uh, I guess my little volunteer things that I do is I volunteer out a teen challenge. And so every Wednesday afternoon I go out teen challenge and I, I ramrod those guys through all my seminar material, right? And they want a rabbit trail over here. We rabbit trail, man. It's rabbit trailing with a purpose. And we unpack theology and we have master's level discussions in amongst a bunch of, bunch of half-recovered addicts. And it's amazing. I remember walking in there the one day and I felt like God was saying, I want you to lay your hands on each one of these guys today and I want you to speak my words of forgiveness over them. Do you know that each one of you is empowered to speak the words of forgiveness? That you can look somebody in the eyes and you can say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus told Peter, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. He wasn't saying that, that Peter did the forgiving. But we understand that when the Spirit of Christ lives through us, we speak with the authority of Jesus. We speak with His power and His Spirit moves through us. You can't make that happen. He makes it happen. Anyway, this day I walked into Teen Challenge and I thought, you know, guys, I said, I want us to take a moment of quiet. I'm going to lay my hands on each one of you and I'm going to speak the forgiveness of God over you. And I walked around that class. And I've done this in a number of different venues. And every time amazing things happen. And I lay my hands on them and suddenly I become aware of the Spirit of God 
And I said this, my son, your sins are forgiven. Come Holy Spirit. And people begin to weep. Well, we have other responses too. One guy looks up at me and goes, I want to puke right now. Okay. Another guy looks up, him, up at me and he says, something inside me really hates you right now. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to get rid of it? So goes with the demon. Come Holy Spirit. And guys are set free. But this power, this power of God to forgive sins, this touching of the lips with the coal, and we flinch, and we're terrified. For anyone here ever read a book called The Hammer of God? I want you to go get that book. You can get it on, online. Download that book. It's written by an old Lutheran bishop from Sweden, of all things. Chapter 1. Chapter 1, uh, there's, there's an image of a guy. The pastor is called in. This guy's terrified to die. He's laying on his bed. And, and just to shorten it up a little bit, anyway, there comes this moment where um, the Lord begins to do this revelatory work in this man who's so desperate, so terrified of dying. And he's going through in his head all the stuff that he's done and how he's failed to please God, and he now has this fear of death. And suddenly there's this moment where God does a similar thing with him. And, he said, and, and the man starts to, to scream. He's bringing a coal. He'll burn me. He'll burn me. And he's thrashing on the bed. And suddenly he rests. The coal has touched his lips. And suddenly he speaks gently and he says, Now I see. Now I see. Lord, all you wanted to do was forgive me. All you wanted to do was forgive me. Forgiveness always comes when we're at the end of our performance and ready to lay, it, lay down our struggle. Oh, it was done beforehand, but our reception of it only comes, you know, you know, mercy, mercy only means anything to anyone when you're at the end of yourself. Did I say that loud enough? Mercy only means anything to anyone when you're at the end of yourself. That is where it is the most powerful. And so this is what Isaiah experienced. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he's ready to be destroyed and he's terrified of death. And the Spirit sends an angel, touches his lips with the coal. My son, your sins are forgiven. And what does it do to him? The interesting thing is it sets up the next stage for what God wants to do in his life. Suddenly God shifts and the cry of the Lord comes out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he's filled with excitement, I can only imagine. Here am I, send me! Not, oh, I'm a dirtbag, I can't do it. You know, if that's where we live, I'm a dirtbag and I can't do it, we're not there yet. We're not in that place of surrender yet. Here am I, send me! I don't really know what I'm doing, you know. I just know in whose hands I am. And it took me a lot of years as a, as a, as a pastor I used to be all so gung-ho I was going to do all this stuff. Forget all that nonsense. God's brought me to the end of that. 
I'm to the point now where I just got to give what God's given me to give, and this is what he's given me to give this morning. God knows what you bring. He knows how he wants to use you. And maybe the prayer for each of us tonight is, Lord, bring us to that place where there's a revelation, where there is a reaction, and the reaction is under the conviction of God. And there's a cleansing. And in that moment of cleansing, there's a calling. And then there's a response. I want to say to each of you that God has got a call in your life. He wants to reveal something in you. And then he wants to cleanse you. And he wants to call you. Are you ready? I want us to take a moment of quiet before God. And I want us to, to offer God what we have. And if you're in Isaiah... And you've been doing the church thing for a long time. And you can't change your heart. And maybe you don't even know that there's more. Maybe that's what you get to offer God this morning. And then God gets to do what God gets to do. Will you pray with me? God Almighty, we come before you right now. And we ask you, we beg of you. That you will do in us what we can't do in ourselves. That you will reveal who we are in the presence of a holy God. And that in that moment, Lord God, the cold may touch our lips, the blood of Christ may touch our lips, and we may stand free in your presence. Father, free to respond to your call in our lives. Free to offer you everything Lord, when you reveal us, it says that you lay us bare, that where our sin now abounds, that, that the grace of God will abound all the more. It says that your word lays us bare, that nothing is hidden before your eyes. And in that moment, we come boldly to receive the mercy we have need of. Father, for my brothers and sisters, my friends in this place, I say, come. And I want to take a moment of quiet now, and I want to give you an opportunity to lift to God what you have. As a parting, part of lifting to God what you have, maybe all you can see is your sin, I want to say to you, God did not come for your good stuff. He came for your bad stuff. God did not come for the righteous, Jesus said. He came for the sinners because only he can cleanse a sinner. So in this moment of time, whatever floats to the top of your mind as God convicts you that is sin or you've dealt with life on your own strength or you've manipulated or you've failed, I want you to offer that to God. And that might be the prayer, Lord, I offer this to you. And now I want to say to you, in the power of the name of Jesus, with all authority of heaven, that my brothers and my sisters, 
your sins have been forgiven. Come, Lord Holy Spirit, now upon us. Come, Lord Holy Spirit, you have touched our lips with the coal. Lord, we, we are here. Send us. Father, we love you. But more than that, you love us. Father, we offer you what we have. And we say yes to what you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, boys. Um, so, yeah, you already prayed. I'm not going to pray again, but thank you for that, and thank you for bringing us to a place of being able to recognize 